We return this morning to what is our normal practice, but a practice we haven't been into for about a month, our normal practice of preaching through books of the Bible. And it seemed to me a good time for me to just remind you, remind all of us of why I do this and don't do 10 ways to strengthen your marriage or seven ways to better your prayer life or or whatever other series you might hear. Those kinds of series, they're not bad. I'm not saying that they are, but I would argue that they're not best. They're not best. Paul told the Ephesian church in Acts chapter 20, he said this phrase, I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God to you. Now Paul, when he said that to the Ephesian church, he wasn't talking about preaching through books of the Bible as we do here in our modern day and age. I recognize that. Paul didn't have time to preach through books of the Bible in the church in Ephesus like I did. He wasn't there long enough. But what Paul is saying, what Paul did say to the Ephesian church, is that he was taking the burden of presenting to God's people the whole of God's revelation and how that revelation finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And that means if this is all profitable for us, then we ought to be looking at as much of it as we can. The hard parts, the difficult parts, as well as those that are easily accessible and exciting. And so my aim in preaching through books of the Bible is to let God's word shape us. And that's simply not done as effectively if I'm just on my hobby horses. Just whatever I want to rail about, I go after it. I've been your pastor now for 11 years. And I went back through my files just curious In addition to topical series on the Lord's Prayer, I do do topical series on the Lord's Prayer, on the life of David, which we just were in, priorities of the Christian life. We've done dozens of individual psalms, but we have worked our way in those 11 years through 20 books of the Bible, nine Old Testament books and 11 New Testament books. That's pretty cool. Praise God. So today I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 John as we dive into our 21st book together. This book is near the back of your Bibles. This is different than the Gospel of John, which is found near the front of your Bibles, or at least near the front of the New Testament. I suspect that many of you are familiar, if you grew up in the church, you're familiar with the book of 1 John. It's not a particularly long book. It's a letter, as are a lot of the books of the New Testament. Nor is the book of 1 John particularly difficult to understand. And so you may ask, well, why, why did you choose this book? Why are we here? Why now? Well, admittedly, I don't know all the reasons why we're here. I don't know all that the Lord will unpack for us, for me in the book of First John. But I do know that I wanted to set our hearts and our lives here because of, of some of the themes that I know exist in the book of First John. First John is an interesting letter. It's not a letter that kind of flows in a linear way, like a linear argument. 
one commentator compares the book of 1 John and the way he writes is a spiral staircase. He kind of talks about something, goes on to something else, and then comes back to talk about what he had talked about before. So we're going to see some of that in the book of 1 John as we study it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. But we're also going to see some consistent themes. And you probably know what some of these themes are. The theme of, of love. A word that appears in 1 John over 40 times. Both a reminder that we are a people who are loved and we are a people who are called to love. Another big theme in the book of 1 John is one of confidence and one of assurance. John wanted his readers to know that what he proclaimed to them was, was true, was worth it, and that they could truly know that they were children of God. And he wants to help them see that. He wants to help them know that. If you flip in your Bibles to the back of 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, near the end of the letter, he says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so that's one of John's big aims in the book, even as he meanders down this spiral staircase, is he wants God's people to know that they can have eternal life. You know, in John's day, we're in the first century, John's day, 50 to 60 years after the resurrection of Jesus, first century false teachers were infiltrating this small church. There were probably under 10,000 Christians in the Roman Empire at this point. Christianity hadn't quite ballooned and blossomed like it would in the next decades to come. But false teachers were coming into these young churches that the apostles had planted and had pastored, and they're asking questions like, did Jesus really come in the flesh? Was he a real person? Maybe he was just a spirit. Maybe he was just some sort of a ghost. And so things about Jesus, important things about Jesus and about matters of the faith were getting murky. We've seen this, of course, in other places. We saw this in the book of Galatians, right? When we studied the book of Galatians and Paul wrote to those churches in Asia Minor. And so we have our own voices today, right? We have our own bit of chatter that we hear in our world. Voices spouting candy-coated lies to us and even worse, to our children. I kind of chased a, a rabbit trail this week of a TikToker who has gained over a million followers as he mocks Christianity in these small 30-second quips, calling into question, particularly those who grew up in the church, kids, calling into question everything you've learned and everything that you've been taught. We have our own chatter. Well, John speaks here in 1 John to the first century church, and the Holy Spirit speaks to us here in our context today against the voices of the world, calling the church back to right doctrine and to gospel-fueled obedience, and love. And so that's where we're headed. That was a lengthy introduction for this series, but that's where we're headed 
for the weeks to come. And so let's jump in and listen as I read. If you are able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. First John chapter one, verses one through four. Listen as I read. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Such a familiar and profound statement made by this country's forefathers in our founding documents. In fact, I think I've used that phrase before to open up other sermons. These are some of our, as the writers of the Declaration said, our unalienable rights endowed to us by our Creator. Rights that that we as a country pledge to protect and to defend. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You ask any stranger on the street, do you want life? Yes, I want life. But then you ask them, what kind of life? What does that life look like? And your answers will be all over the place. You ask anybody on the street, do you want happiness? Of course I want happiness. Well, how do you get there? What is happiness if it's one of our pursuits as citizens? Well, that too will give you answers all over the map. Thousands of years before Jefferson, John reminds us in these opening verses, verses 1 through 4, which is called a prologue, of two truths that transcend that familiar statement that I just made. Two truths that serve as really the foundation of all that he will say in the rest of the letter. Two truths that I hope will encourage and challenge us this morning. The first one is this, life, true life, is found in the person of Jesus. Life is found in the person of Jesus. It's the first thing John wants to convey in verses 1 and 2 of this letter. This is not your typical letter opening. This is actually how my uncle begins phone calls. You pick up the phone and... There's no, hey, Nate, this is Uncle Addison. How, how are you doing? No, you pick up the phone and he says, so I sent you a package in the mail. You'll probably get it this week. And, and you say, well, who is this? John does the same thing. Unlike almost every other letter in the New Testament, John just jumps right into it. Note, John to the churches in Asia Minor, greetings to you. No. 
That which we have heard, that which we have seen. John wants to get right to the heart of it. There's some urgency here. And what is the heart of it? What is the heart of Christianity? It's the incarnation. The fact that Jesus has been made flesh for us. So the first thing to determine as we hear these words as he just jumps right in, that which is from the beginning, we need to figure out who or what is the which, right? Who or what is the which? Four times John says, that which, which we, which we. Well, we know who the which is. We know what the which is. It's not an idea. It's not an ideology. It's not an ideal. It's not just a message, but it's a man. The witch is a man. And it's a man who is the author's friend. Actually, the author's best friend. You see, the the man that wrote this letter is John. Not John the baptizer, Jesus' cousin, but John, the son of Zebedee. One of the sons of thunder, as Jesus nicknamed them. This is John the Beloved. This is John, one of Jesus' inner circle while he was here on earth. John is quite old now as he writes this letter to the church. But John is the man who reclined on Jesus at the Last Supper. John is the man who stood at the foot of the cross as Jesus breathed his last. John is the one who visited the empty tomb on the third day. And John is the one who, in one of my favorite stories in the New Testament, ate breakfast on the beach with the risen Christ. This is the John who wrote the fourth gospel, and we hear echoes of the fourth gospel here, don't we? How does John's gospel begin? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. You see, this is all important, knowing who wrote this letter, because John is drawing our attention to two things about Jesus in these first two verses. First of all, He was from the beginning. When John says that, what he means is what he spoke about in his Gospel. Before time, this Jesus was with the Father as God, speaking the world into existence. And so the prophet Habakkuk's words, years before Jesus would even appear on the earth, apply to him, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? This is big, John says. This is otherworldly. That which was from the beginning, the very beginning, The beginning before the beginning. Jesus was there. But also, John wants to communicate something very earthly. So something huge and something otherworldly, but also something very intimate and very earthly. And that is, he was here. He was my friend. I hung out with him. We all did, right? He brings the plural here in these verses. We, that which we have seen. Who is the we? The we is the apostolic band. 
All these men that surrounded Jesus, as well as the women who were part of His entourage. We all, John says, we were ear witnesses. That which we have heard. We sat, we heard things from Him that we had never heard spoken before, John says in his Gospel. We were ear witnesses. We were eyewitnesses. That which we have seen. He was alive. Then He was dead. Then He was alive again. We saw it. And we didn't just see it, but we were hand witnesses. We touched Him with our own hands. This wasn't some from a distance ghost that was floating in the sky. He was in the room with us. Some of us touched His very death scars. John's saying, this is what I proclaim to you. Is that life is found Not in an ideal, not in a message, not in a religion, but in the person of Jesus. A person I knew, a person I love. John says all this, why? Because he wants to be believed. As some of his readers heard this word, they knew John, some of them. They remembered seeing John, meeting John. How powerful was this to have John plead this kind of personal testimony, this kind of personal eyewitness testimony? John had a privileged place that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 13 where Jesus said, blessed are your eyes. He said this to the disciples, for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see. But that's not us, right? We weren't there. We didn't personally know John. And so the question we have to ask is, is John believable? Is his testimony in letters like this and in his account of Jesus' life, is it, is it believable or is it just the, the rantings of a crazy person? Well, church history wouldn't tell us that John was, was martyred for his faith as some of the other disciples were, but history would tell us that John took what he believed to his deathbed. He staked his very life on it. And in fact, indeed, that's that's in part why Christianity grew from probably less than 10,000 people at the time John is writing this to just 300 years later, close to 34 million people in the Roman Empire who confessed Christ. How does that happen? Well, yes, it happens supernaturally by the power and the moving of God's Spirit, but it also happens because there were men like this. There were women like this. There were dozens of people like this who said, I saw Him. I heard Him. I touched Him. He is who He said He was. And they changed the world as a result. And so John is saying life in its fullest and truest sense, eternal life, purpose, and peace in this life is only found in the person of Jesus. You and I weren't there. But John's confession 
of life through the person of Jesus is ours by faith. And Jesus spoke about us too. Jesus said in John 20, 29, blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet believed. You see, I think John's opening verses in this letter are so powerful, particularly for you young people who are being challenged by the world to call in question this ancient faith, this God that we can't see. We say, no, here is a testimony. Here is a reliable testimony of someone who's pleading, I was there. Believe it. Believe the one whom he has sent. Well, then what? Well, that's where John goes next in verses three and four, and it's the second truth I want us to focus on for a minute. And it's simply this, joy flows from fellowship. Life is found in the person of Jesus, and joy flows from fellowship. First thing I want to do is try to determine whose joy, your translations before you say that that John is writing that our joy, right? That the joy of the apostles, that his joy might be complete. While some of some other translations might say, or you might have a footnote in your translation that says, some translations say, some manuscripts say, your joy may be complete. So whose joy is it? Is it John's joy? Is it your joy. What joy needs to be complete? The difference between these two words, your and our, is one Greek letter. And so yes, ancient manuscripts, as they were collected when the canon of the Bible was formed, ancient manuscripts, dozens of them, some of them had this one letter that said our, some of them had another letter that said your, and it's what we would call in New Testament study a textual variant There are textual variants in the Bible. But like most all textual variants, it's not that big of a deal. It doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, it doesn't make any difference. Of course, John, as a father, as a mother, he and the apostles have invested so much in this fledgling church. We'll hear him talk about the church as if they are his children in weeks to come. Of course, he and the apostles, they want to see this church affirming and living in the truth that they taught. Don't you want that, parents, for your children? Wouldn't that make your joy complete? Absolutely. But you also know that if your children walk in that truth, if they affirm the person of Jesus, that their joy is found there too. Jesus said as much in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy, Jesus says, may be in you and that your joy may be full. And this pursuit, going back to where we started, this pursuit of happiness in our day and age is a subjective, mostly misguided thing. John is proclaiming here what one preacher helpfully describes as subterranean joy. This is biblical, Christian joy, the the kind of perspective that undergirds all of life. The sweet moments 
and the terribly sour moments as well. The kind of joy that gives unchanging stability to the chaos on the surface of things. This kind of joy is possible. And the path, John writes, is through fellowship. Verse 3, fellowship with us, he says, and fellowship in turn with the Father and with the Son. Now the word fellowship has in our circles, it's lost some of its punch. It's lost some of its oomph. I'm partly to blame for that as a pastor who's put stuff on flyers. Food, fun, and fellowship. Come have some. It's accurate to a degree, but it's not complete. The word here is a familiar word to those in the church. Koinonia is the Greek word. To have in common. But it's a distinctly Christian thing as John writes of it here. It's a sharing. It's a partnership. It goes much deeper than than a Facebook group that has brought people together because of a common interest. There is a a union that you and I have, brothers and sisters in Christ. There is a participation together, not just in hobbies, but in things far beyond our world. Which is why many of you feel closer to the body of Christ, closer to Christians in your life, some of you, than to even your own biological family. And how do we gain that kind of fellowship, that kind of participation in life together? Well, it begins, John says here, by receiving the apostolic word. By becoming part of this body. By becoming part of the church. A church built upon the foundation. And this point is important. And it will become increasingly important in the weeks to come as we walk through this letter. John is saying that fellowship with God isn't achieved through your own ideas, your own inventions of spirituality. It is achieved through fellowship with the apostles through their teaching. That's why in a few minutes we'll confess together from the Nicene Creed of our belief in one holy Catholic, that's lowercase c, meaning universal church, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. As one commentator put it, If we want to hold the hand of God, we must hold the apostles' hands. And holding the apostles' hands means believing the testimony that they have given us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by clinging to the truths that are found here, by walking in obedience to those truths. And holding the hands of the apostles also means holding the hands figuratively speaking, I won't make you do it, of those in this room. And you think, oh, geez, not sure. Not sure if that's what I want to do. That's maybe the last thing I want to do. Perhaps that's a little bit off-putting, right? Why? Because in this room, there are a lot of fears. There is a lot of brokenness. There is a lot of baggage. There is a lot of mess. And I know all that because it's all right here too. 
And yet the invitation that John is going to give in this book of 1 John is a life of fellowship with one another. Ultimately, with the Lord. And it's that life. It's that life that is the path to steely joy. Union with God. Union with His people. There's much more to be said. When this letter was originally heard, it would have been read in its entirety. We're just going to nibble week by week on this Great book. But let me just end with this. The world says that life and joy are to be found, can be found outside of Jesus. And John emphatically says, no. You're right where you need to be. Believe my testimony. Believe the Son. Be His people. Live in Him. And life and joy will be yours. And it will be mine, John says. Next week, he'll continue to show us what this looks like, but today we simply rejoice and strive for what we've been given. Life found in Jesus. Joy flowing from fellowship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this this word that you have preserved by your Holy Spirit for generations upon generations for us to consider as your people in this season of our lives. Father, there may be some in this room, there may be some watching who don't know the life that is found in Jesus, who don't have that promise of eternal life in the one that you have sent. Oh, Father, if that is the case, I pray that the things that we have sung, the things that I have said the things that have been heard would point those as we sang earlier Jesus' invitation come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And for those of us who have known and loved Jesus for years Father speak your word anew to us. Give us the strength to pursue the joy that can only be found in our union with You. Perhaps some of us here need to be revived spiritually. We're in a season of drought. Oh, Father, may the confidence of John and his words to us instill confidence in Your people. Maybe there are those here struggling with just loving the body of Christ and our differences and our messiness. Father, I pray that You would remind them through your word that it's a privilege to be called into this mess. This mess that is the church. We're all broken. We're all in need of grace. May we show that grace to one another. May you bind us together around the gospel of your Son. Father, thank you for speaking to us. Prepare all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.